Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. Plushcare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Tonight, I continue the story, The Blue Castle. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 11 Meanwhile, the dinner in its earlier stages was dragging its slow length along, true to sterling form. The room was chilly, in spite of the calendar, and Aunt Alberta had the gas logs lighted. Everybody in the clan envied her those gas logs, except Valency. 
Glorious open fires blazed in every room of her blue castle when autumnal nights were cool, but she would have frozen to death in it before she would have committed the sacrilege of a gas log. Uncle Herbert made his hardy perennial joke when he helped Aunt Wellington to the cold meat. Mary, will you have a little lamb? Aunt Mildred told the same old story of once finding a lost ring in a turkey's crop. Uncle Benjamin told his favorite tale of how he had once chased and punished a now famous man for stealing apples. Second cousin Jane described all her sufferings with an ulcerating tooth. Aunt Wellington admired the pattern of Aunt Alberta's silver teaspoons and lamented the fact that one of her own had been lost. It spoiled the set. I could never get it matched. And it was my wedding present from dear old Aunt Matilda. Aunt Isabel thought the seasons were changing and couldn't imagine what had become of our good old-fashioned springs. Cousin Georgiana, as usual, discussed the last funeral and wondered audibly, which of us will be the next to pass away? Cousin Georgiana could never say anything as blunt as die. Valancy thought she could tell her, but didn't. Cousin Gladys, likewise as usual, had a grievance. Her visiting nephews had nipped all the buds off her houseplants and chivied her brood of fancy chickens. Squeeze some of them actually to death, my dear. Boys will be boys, reminded Uncle Herbert tolerantly. But they needn't be ramping, rampageous animals, retorted Cousin Gladys, looking round the table for appreciation of her wit. Everybody smiled, except Valency. Cousin Gladys remembered that. A few minutes later, when Ellen Hamilton was being discussed, Cousin Gladys spoke of her as one of those shy, plain girls who can't get husbands and glanced significantly at Valency. Uncle James thought the conversation was sagging to a rather low plane of personal gossip. He tried to elevate it by starting an abstract discussion on the greatest happiness. Everybody was asked to state his or her idea of the greatest happiness. Aunt Mildred thought the greatest happiness, for a woman, was to be a loving and beloved wife and mother. Aunt Wellington thought it would be to travel in Europe. Olive thought it would be to be a great singer like Tetrazzini. Gladys remarked mournfully that her greatest happiness would be to be free, absolutely free from neuritis. Cousin Georgiana's greatest happiness would be to have her dear dead brother Richard back. Aunt Alberta remarked vaguely that the greatest happiness was to be found in the poetry of life and hastily gave some directions to her maid to prevent anyone asking her what she meant. Mrs. Frederick said the greatest happiness was to spend your life in loving service for others and Cousin Stickles and Aunt Isabel agreed with her. Aunt Isabel, with a resentful air, as if she thought Mrs. Frederick had taken the wind out of her sails by saying it first. We are all too prone, continued Mrs. Frederick, determined to not lose so good an opportunity, to live in selfishness, worldliness, and sin. The other women all felt rebuked for their low ideals, and Uncle James had a conviction that the conversation had been uplifted with a vengeance. The greatest happiness, said Valancy suddenly and distinctly, is to sneeze when you want to. Everybody stared. Nobody felt it safe to say anything. Was Valancy trying to be funny? It was incredible. 
Mrs. Frederick, who had been breathing easier since the dinner had progressed so far without any outbreak on the part of Valancy, began to tremble again. But she deemed it the part of prudence to say nothing. Uncle Benjamin was not so prudent. He rashly rushed in where Mrs. Frederick fared to tread. Doss, he chuckled, what is the difference between a young girl and an old maid? One is happy and careless, and the other is cappy and hairless, said Valancy. You have asked that riddle at least fifty times in my recollection, Uncle Ben. Why don't you hunt up some new riddles if riddle you must? It is such a fatal mistake to try to be funny if you don't succeed. Uncle Benjamin stared foolishly. Never in his life had he, Benjamin Sterling of Sterling and Frost, been spoken to so. And by Valancy of all people. He looked feebly around the table to see what the others thought of it. Everybody was looking rather blank. Poor Mrs. Frederick had shut her eyes, and her lips moved tremblingly as if she were praying. Perhaps she was. The situation was so unprecedented that nobody knew how to meet it. Valancy went on calmly eating her salad as if nothing out of the usual had happened. Aunt Alberta, to save her dinner, plunged into an account of how a dog had bitten her recently. Uncle James, to back her up, asked where the dog had bitten her. Just a little below the Catholic Church, said Aunt Alberta. At that point, Valancy laughed. Nobody else laughed. What was there to laugh at? Is that a vital part? asked Valancy. What do you mean? said a bewildered Aunt Alberta. And Mrs. Frederick was almost driven to believe that she had served God all her years for naught. Aunt Isabel concluded that it was up to her to suppress Valancy. Doss, you're horribly thin, she said. You are all corners. Do you ever try to fatten up a little? No. Valancy was not asking quarter or giving it. But I can tell you where you will find a beauty parlor in Port Lawrence where they can reduce the number of your chins. Valancy. The protest was wrung for Mrs. Frederick. She meant her tone to be stately and majestic as usual, but it sounded more like an imploring whine. And she did not say dos. She's feverish, said Cousin Stickles to Uncle Benjamin in an agonized whisper. We thought she seemed feverish for several days. She's gone dippy, in my opinion, growled Uncle Benjamin. If not, she ought to be spanked. Yes, spanked. You can't spank her, Cousin Stickles was much agitated. She's 29 years old. So there is that advantage, at least, in being 29, said Valancy, whose ears had caught this aside. Doss, said Uncle Benjamin, when I'm dead, you may say what you please. As long as I'm alive, I demand to be treated with respect. Oh, but you know we're all dead, said Valancy, the whole Sterling clan. Some of us are buried, and some aren't, yet. That is the only difference. Doss, said Uncle Benjamin, thinking about cow Valancy. Do you remember the time you stole the raspberry jam? Valancy flushed scarlet, with suppressed laughter, not shame. She had been sure Uncle Benjamin would drag that jam in somehow. Of course I do, she said. It was good jam. I've always been sorry I hadn't time to eat more of it before you found me. Oh, look at Aunt Isabel's profile on the wall. Did you ever see anything so funny? Everybody looked 
including Aunt Isabel herself, which of course destroyed it. But Uncle Herbert said kindly, I, I wouldn't eat any more if I were you, Doss. It isn't that I grudge it, but don't you think it would be better for yourself? Your, your stomach seems a little out of order. Don't worry about my stomach, old dear, said Valancy. It is all right. I'm going to keep right on eating. It's so seldom I get the chance of a satisfying meal. It was the first time anyone had been called old dear in Darewood. The Sterlings thought Valancy had invented the phrase, and they were afraid of her from that moment. There was something so uncanny about such an expression. But in poor Mrs. Frederick's opinion, the reference to the satisfying meal was the worst thing Valancy had said yet. Valancy had always been a disappointment to her. Now, she was a disgrace. She thought she would have to get up and go away from the table, yet she dared not to leave Valancy there. Aunt Alberta's maid came in to remove the salad plates and bring in the dessert. It was a welcome diversion. Everybody brightened up with a determination to ignore Valancy and talk as if she wasn't there. Uncle Wellington mentioned Barney Snaith. Eventually, somebody did mention Barney Snaith at every sterling function, Valancy reflected. Whatever he was, he was an individual that could not be ignored. She resigned herself to listen. There was a subtle fascination in the subject for her, though she had not yet faced this fact. She could feel her pulses beating to her fingertips. Of course they abused him. Nobody ever had a good word to say of Barney Snaith. All the old, wild tales were canvassed. The defaulting cashier, counterfeiter, murderer in hiding, legends were thrashed out. Uncle Wellington was very indignant that such a creature should be allowed to exist at all in the neighborhood of Darewood. He didn't know what the police of Port Lawrence were thinking of. Everybody would be murdered in their beds some night. It was a shame that he should be allowed to be at large after all that he had done. What has he done? asked Valancy suddenly. Uncle Wellington stared at her, forgetting that she was to be ignored. Done? Done? He's done everything. What has he done? repeated Valancy inexorably. What do you know that he has done? You're always running him down. And what has ever been proved against him? I don't argue with women, said Uncle Wellington, and I don't need proof. When a man hides himself up there on an island in Muskoka, year in and year out, and nobody can find out where he came from or how he lives or what he does there, that's proof enough. Find a mystery and you find a crime. The very idea of a man named Snaith, said second cousin Sarah, why the name itself is enough to condemn him. I wouldn't like to meet him in a dark lane, shivered cousin Georgiana. What do you suppose he would do to you? asked Valancy. Murder me, said cousin Georgiana solemnly. Just for the fun of it, suggested Valancy. Exactly, said cousin Georgiana unsuspiciously. When there is so much smoke, there must be some fire. I was afraid he was a criminal when he came here first. I felt he had something to hide. I am not often mistaken in my intuitions. Criminal. Of course he's a criminal, said Uncle Wellington. Nobody doubts it. Glaring at Valancy. Why, they say he served a term in the penitentiary for embezzlement. I don't doubt it. And they say he's in with that gang that are perpetrating all those bank robberies around the country. 
Who say? asked Valancy. Uncle Wellington nodded his ugly forehead at her. What had gotten into this confounded girl anyway? He ignored the question. He has the identical look of a jailbird, snapped Uncle Benjamin. I noticed it the first time I saw him. A fellow by the hand of nature marked, quoted and sighed to do a deed of shame, declaimed Uncle James. He looked enormously pleased over the managing to work that quotation in at last. He'd been waiting all his life for the chance. One of his eyebrows is an arch and the other is a triangle, said Valancy. Is that why you think him so villainous? Uncle James lifted his eyebrows. Generally, when Uncle James lifted his eyebrows, the world came to an end. This time, it continued to function. How do you know his eyebrows so well, Doss? asked Olive, a trifle maliciously. Such a remark would have covered Valancy with confusion two weeks ago, and Olive knew it. Yes, how? demanded Aunt Wellington. I've seen him twice, and I looked at him closely, said Valancy, composedly. I thought his face the most interesting one I ever saw. There's no doubt there's something fishy in the creature's past life, said Olive, who began to think she was decidedly out of the conversation, which had centered so amazingly around Valancy. But he can hardly be guilty of everything he's accused of, you know. Valancy felt annoyed with Olive. Why should she speak up in even this qualified defense of Barney Snaith? What had she to do with him? For that matter, what had Valancy? But Valancy did not ask herself this question. They say he keeps dozens of cats in that hut up back on Mistawas, said second cousin Sarah Taylor, by way of appearing not entirely ignorant of him. Cats. It sounded quite alluring to Valancy, in the plural. She pictured an island in Muskoka haunted by cats. That alone shows there's something wrong with him, decreed Aunt Isabel. People who don't like cats, said Valancy, attacking her dessert with a relish, always seem to think that there is some peculiar virtue in not liking them. The man hasn't a friend except Roaring Abel, said Uncle Wellington, and if Roaring Abel had kept away from him, as everybody else did, it would have been better for, for some members of his family. Uncle Wellington's rather lame conclusion was due to a marital glance from Aunt Wellington, reminding him of what he had almost forgotten, that there were girls at the table. If you mean, said Valancy passionately, that Barney Snaith is the father of Cicely Gay's child, he isn't. It's a wicked lie. In spite of her indignation, Valancy was hugely amused at the expression of the faces around that festal table. She had not seen anything like it since the day, 17 years ago, when at Cousin Gladys's thimble party, they discovered that she had got something in her head at school. Lice in her head. Valancy was done with euphemisms. Poor Mrs. Frederick was almost in a state of collapse. She had believed, or pretended to believe, that Valancy still supposed that children were found in parsley beds. Hush, hush implored Cousin Stickles. I don't mean to hush, said Valancy perversely. I've hush-hushed all my life. I'll scream if I want to. Don't make me want to. And stop talking nonsense about Barney Snaith. Valancy didn't exactly understand her own indignation. What did Barney Snaith's imputed crimes and misdemeanors matter to her? And why, out of them all, did it seem most intolerable 
that he should have been poor, pitiful little Cicely Gay's false lover, for it did seem intolerable to her. She did not mind when they called him a thief, and a counterfeiter, and a jailbird, but she could not endure to think that he had loved and ruined Cicely Gay. She recalled his face on the two occasions of their chance meetings, his twisted, enigmatic, engaging smile, his twinkle, his thin, sensitive, almost ascetic lips, his general air of frank, dear deviltry. A man with such a smile and lips might have murdered or stolen, but he could not have betrayed. She suddenly hated everyone who said it or believed it of him. When I was a young girl, I never thought or spoke about such matters, Doss, said Aunt Wellington crushingly. But I am not a young girl, retorted Valancy, uncrushed. Aren't you always rubbing that into me? And you're all evil-minded, senseless gossips. Can't you leave poor Sissy Gay alone? She's dying. Whatever she did, God or the devil has punished her enough for it. You needn't take a hand too. As for Barney Snaith, the only crime he has been guilty of is living to himself and minding his own business. He can, it seems, get along without you. Which is an unpardonable sin, of course, in your little snobocracy. Valancy coined that concluding word suddenly and felt that it was an inspiration. That was exactly what they were, and not one of them was fit to mend another. Valancy, your poor father would turn over in his grave if he could hear you, said Mrs. Frederick. I dare say he would like that for a change, said Valancy brazenly. Doss, said Uncle James heavily. The Ten Commandments are fairly up to date still, especially the Fifth. Have you forgotten that? No, said Valancy, but I thought you had, especially the Ninth. Have you ever thought, Uncle James, how dull life would be without the Ten Commandments? It is only when things are forbidden that they become fascinating. But her excitement had been too much for her. She knew, by certain unmistakable warnings, that one of her attacks of pain was coming on. It must not find her there. She rose from her chair. I'm going home now. I only came for the dinner. It was very good, Aunt Alberta, although your salad dressing is not salt enough, and a dash of cayenne would improve it. None of the flabbergasted silver wedding guests could think of anything to say until the lawn gate clanged behind Valancy in the dusk. Then, she's feverish. I've said right along she was feverish, moaned Cousin Stickles. Uncle Benjamin punished his pudgy left hand fiercely with his pudgy right. She's dippy. I tell you she's gone dippy, he snorted angrily. That's all there is about it. Clean dippy. Oh, Benjamin, said Cousin Georgiana soothingly. Don't condemn her too rashly. We must remember what dare old Shakespeare says, that charity thinketh no evil. Charity? Poppycock, snorted Uncle Benjamin. I never heard a young woman talk such stuff in my life as she just did. Talking about things she ought to be ashamed to think of, much less mention. Blaspheming. Insulting us. What she wants is a generous dose of spankweed. And I'd like to be the one to administer it. Uncle Benjamin gulped down the half of a scalding cup of coffee. Do you suppose that the mumps could work on a person that way, wailed Cousin Stickles. I opened an umbrella in the house yesterday, sniffed Cousin Georgiana. I knew it betokened some misfortune. Have you tried to find out if she has a temperature? asked Cousin Mildred. She wouldn't let Amelia put the thermometer under her tongue, whimpered Cousin Stickles. Mrs. Frederick was openly in tears. 
all her defenses were down. I must tell you, she sobbed, that Valancy has been acting very strangely for over two weeks now. She hasn't been a bit like herself, Christine could tell you. I've hoped against hope that it was only one of her colds coming on, but it is, it must be something worse. This is bringing on my neuritis again, said Cousin Gladys, putting her hand to her head. Don't cry, Amelia, said Herbert, kindly, pulling nervously at his spiky grey hair. He hated family ructions. Very inconsiderate of Doss to start one at his silver wedding. Who would have supposed she had it in her? You'll have to take her to a doctor. This may only be a, a brainstorm. There are such things as brainstorms nowadays, aren't there? I suggested consulting a doctor to her yesterday, moaned Mrs. Frederick, and she said she wouldn't go to a doctor, wouldn't. Or surely I've had trouble enough. And she won't take Redfern's bitters, said Cousin Stickles. Or anything, said Mrs. Frederick, and she's determined to go to the Presbyterian Church, said Cousin Stickles, repressing, however, to her credit, be it said, the story of the banister. That proves she's dippy, growled Uncle Benjamin. I noticed something strange about her the minute she came in today. I noticed it before today. Everything she said today showed an unbalanced mind. That question, was it a vital part? Was there any sense at all in that remark? None whatever. There never was anything like that in the Stirlings. It must be from the Wandsboroughs. Poor Mrs. Frederick was too crushed to be indignant. I never heard of anything like that in the Wandsboroughs, she sobbed. Your father was odd enough, said Uncle Benjamin. Poor Pa was peculiar, admitted Mrs. Frederick, tearfully, but his mind was never affected. He talked all his life exactly as Valancy did today, retorted Uncle Benjamin, and he believed he was his own great-great-grandfather born again. I've heard him say it. Don't tell me that a man who believed a thing like that was ever in his right senses. Come, come, Amelia, stop sniffling. Of course, Doss has made a terrible exhibition of herself today, but she's not responsible. Old maids are apt to fly off at a tangent like that. If she had been married when she should have been, she wouldn't have got like this. Nobody wanted to marry her, said Mrs. Frederick, who felt somehow Uncle Benjamin was blaming her. Well. Fortunately, there's no outsider here, snapped Uncle Benjamin. We may keep it in the family yet. I'll take her over to see Dr. Marsh tomorrow. I know how to deal with pig-headed people. Won't that be best, James? We must have medical advice, certainly, agreed Uncle James. Well, that's settled. In the meantime, Amelia, act as if nothing had happened and keep an eye on her. Don't let her be alone. Above all, don't let her sleep alone renewed whimpers from Mrs. Frederick. I can't help it. Night before last, I suggested she'd better have Christine sleep with her. She positively refused and locked her door. Oh, you don't know how she's changed. She won't work. At least she won't sew. She does her usual housework, of course. But she wouldn't sweep the parlor yesterday morning, though we always sweep it on Thursdays. She said she'd wait till it was dirty. Would you rather sweep a dirty room than a clean one? I asked her. She said, of course. I'd see something for my labor then. Think of it. Uncle Benjamin thought of it. The jar of pot puree 
Cousin Stickles pronounced it as spelled, has disappeared from her room. I found the pieces in the next lot. She won't tell us what happened to it. I should never have dreamed it of Doss, said Uncle Herbert. She has always seemed such a quiet, sensible girl. A bit backward, but sensible. The only thing you can be sure of in this world is the multiplication table, said Uncle James, feeling cleverer than ever. Well, let's cheer up, suggested Uncle Benjamin. Why are chorus girls like fine stock raisers? Why? asked Cousin Stickles. Since it had to be asked, and Valency wasn't there to ask it. Like to exhibit calves, chuckled Uncle Benjamin. Cousin Stickles thought Uncle Benjamin a little indelicate, before Olive too. But then he was a man. Uncle Herbert was thinking that things were rather dull now that Doss had gone. Chapter 12 Valency hurried home through the faint blue twilight. Hurried too fast, perhaps. The attack she had when she thankfully reached the shelter of her own room was the worst yet. It was really very bad. Valency felt pitifully alone. When she could think at all, she wondered what it would be like to have someone with her who could sympathize, someone who really cared, just to hold her hand tight, if nothing else. Someone just to say, Yes, I know, it's dreadful, be brave, you'll soon be better. Not someone merely fussy and alarmed. Not her mother or cousin Stickles. Why did the thought of Barney Snaith come into her mind? Why did she suddenly feel, in the midst of this hideous loneliness of pain, that he would be sympathetic? Sorry for anyone that was suffering. Why did he seem to her like an old, well-known friend? Was it because she had been defending him, standing up to her family for him? She was so bad at first that she could not even get herself a dose of Dr. Trent's prescription. But eventually she managed it, and soon after relief came. The pain left her as she lay on her bed, spent, exhausted, in a cold perspiration. Oh, that had been horrible. She could not endure many more attacks of pain like that. Suddenly, she found herself laughing. That dinner had been fun. And it had been all so simple. She had merely said the things she always thought. Their faces. Uncle Benjamin. Poor, flabbergasted Uncle Benjamin. Valency felt quite sure that he would make a new will that very night. Olive would get Valency's share of his fat hoard. Olive had always got Valency's share of everything. Remember the dust pile. To laugh at her clan as she had always wanted to laugh was all the satisfaction she could get out of life now. But she thought it was rather pitiful that it should be so. Might she not pity herself a little when nobody else did? Valency got up and went to her window. The moist, beautiful wind blowing across groves of young-leafed wild trees touched her face with the caress of a wise, tender old friend. The Lombardies in Mrs. Treadgold's lawn, off to the left, Valency could just see them between the stable and the old carriage shop, were in dark purple silhouette against a clear sky, and there was a milk-white, pulsating star just over one of them, like a living pearl on a silver-green lake. Far beyond the station were the shadowy, purple-hooded woods around Lake Mistawas. A white, filmy mist hung over them, 
and just above it was a faint young crescent. Valancy looked at it over her thin left shoulder. I wish, she said whimsically, that I may have one little dust pile before I die. Chapter 13 Uncle Benjamin found he had reckoned without his host when he promised so airily to take Valancy to a doctor. Valancy would not go. Valancy laughed in his face. Why on earth should I go to Dr. Marsh? There's nothing the matter with my mind. Though you all think I've suddenly gone crazy. Well, I haven't. I've simply grown tired of living to please other people and have decided to please myself. It will give you something to talk about besides my stealing the raspberry jam, so that's that. Doss, said Uncle Benjamin, solemnly and helplessly, you're not like yourself. Who am I like then? asked Valancy. Uncle Benjamin was rather posed. Your grandfather, Wandsborough, he answered desperately. Thanks, Valancy looked pleased. That's a real compliment. I remember Grandfather Wandsborough. He was one of the few human beings I have known, almost the only one. Now, it is of no use to scold or entreat or command Uncle Benjamin or exchange anguished glances with Mother and Cousin Stickles. I am not going to any doctor. And if you bring any doctor here, I won't see him. So what are you going to do about it? What indeed? It was not seemly, or even possible, to hail Valancy doctor words by physical force. And in no other way could it be done, seemingly. Her mother's tears and imploring entreaties availed not. Don't worry, mother, said Valancy, lightly but quite respectfully. It isn't likely I'll do anything very terrible. But I mean to have a little fun. Fun? Mrs. Frederick uttered the word, as if Valancy had said she was going to have a little tuberculosis. Olive, sent by her mother to see if she had any influence over Valancy, came away with flushed cheeks and angry eyes. She told her mother that nothing could be done with Valancy. After she, Olive, had talked to her just like a sister, tenderly and wisely, all Valancy had said, narrowing her funny eyes to mere slips, was, I don't show my gums when I laugh. More as if she were talking to herself than to me. Indeed, mother, all the time I was talking to her, she gave me the impression of not really listening. And that wasn't all. When I finally decided that what I was saying had no influence over her, I begged her, when Cecil came next week, not to say anything strange before him, at least. Mother, what do you think she said? I'm sure I can't imagine, groaned Aunt Wellington, prepared for anything. She said, I'd rather like to shock Cecil. His mouth is too red for a man's. Mother, I can never feel the same to Valancy again. Her mind is affected, Olive, said Aunt Wellington solemnly. You must not hold her responsible for what she says. When Aunt Wellington told Mrs. Frederick what Valancy had said to Olive, Mrs. Frederick wanted Valancy to apologize. You made me apologize to Olive 15 years ago for something I didn't do, said Valancy. That old apology will do for now. Another solemn family conclave was held. They were all there except Cousin Gladys, who had been suffering such tortures of neuritis in her head ever since poor Doss went strange that she couldn't undertake any responsibility. They decided, that is, 
they accepted a fact that was thrust in their faces, that the wisest thing was to leave Valancy alone for a while, give her her head, as Uncle Benjamin expressed it, keep a careful eye on her, but let her pretty much alone. The term of watchful waiting had not been invented then, but that was practically the policy Valancy's distracted relatives decided to follow. We must be guided by developments, said Uncle Benjamin. It is, solemnly, easier to scramble eggs than unscramble them. Of course, if she becomes violent, Uncle James consulted Dr. Ambrose Marsh. Dr. Ambrose Marsh approved the decision. He pointed out to irate Uncle James, who would have liked to lock Valancy up somewhere out of hand, that Valancy had not, as yet, really done or said anything that could be constructed as proof of lunacy. And without proof, you cannot lock people up in this degenerate age. Nothing that Uncle James had reported seemed very alarming to Dr. Marsh, who put up his hand to conceal a smile several times. But then, he himself was not a sterling, and he knew very little about the old Valancy. Uncle James stalked out and drove back to Darewood, thinking that Ambrose Marsh wasn't much of a doctor after all, and that Adelaide Sterling might have done better for herself. Chapter 14 Life cannot stop because tragedy enters it. Meals must be made ready though a son dies, and porches must be repaired, even if your only daughter is going out of her mind. Mrs. Frederick, in her systematic way, had long ago appointed the second week in June for the repairing of the front porch, the roof of which was sagging dangerously. Roaring Abel had been engaged to do it many moons before, and Roaring Abel promptly appeared on the morning of the first day of the second week and fell to work. Of course, he was drunk. Roaring Abel was never anything but drunk. But he was only in the first stage which made him talkative and genial. The odor of whiskey on his breath nearly drove Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles wild at dinner. Even Valancy, with all her emancipation, did not like it. But she liked Abel, and she liked his vivid, eloquent talk. And after she washed the dinner dishes, she went out and sat on the steps and talked to him. Mrs. Frederick and Cousin Stickles thought it a terrible proceeding, but what could they do? Valancy only smiled mockingly at them when they called her in and did not go. It was so easy to defy once you got started. The first step was the only one that really counted. They were both afraid to say anything more to her lest she might make a scene before Roaring Abel, who would spread it all over the country with his own characteristic comments and exaggerations. It was too cold a day, in spite of the June sunshine, for Mrs. Frederick to sit at the dining room window and listen to what was said. She had to shut the window, and Valancy and Roaring Abel had their talk to themselves. But if Mrs. Frederick had known what the outcome of that talk was to be, she would have prevented it if the porch was never repaired. Valancy sat on the steps, defiant of the chill breeze of this cold June, which had made Aunt Isabel aver the seasons were changing. She did not care whether she caught a cold or not. It was delightful to sit there in that cold, beautiful, fragrant world and feel free. She filled her lungs with the clean, lovely wind and held out her arms to it and let it tear her hair to pieces while she, listening to Roaring Abel, who told her his troubles between intervals of hammering in time to his Scotch songs, Valancy liked to hear him. 
every stroke of his hammer fell true to the note. Old Abel Gay, in spite of his seventy years, was handsome still, in a stately, patriarchal manner. His tremendous beard, falling down over his blue flannel shirt, was still a flaming untouched red, though his shock of hair was white as snow and his eyes were fiery youthful blue. His enormous reddish-white eyebrows were more like moustaches than eyebrows. Perhaps this was why he always kept his upper lip scrupulously shaved. His cheeks were red, and his nose ought to have been, but wasn't. It was a fine, upstanding aquiline nose, such as the noblest Roman of them all might have rejoiced in. Abel was six foot two in his stockings, broad-shouldered, lean-hipped. In his youth he had been a famous lover, finding all women too charming to bind himself to one. His years had been a wild, colorful panorama of follies and adventures, gallantries, fortunes and misfortunes. He had been forty-five before he married, a pretty slip of a girl whom his goings-on killed in a few years. Abel was piously drunk at her funeral and insisted on repeating the 55th chapter of Isaiah. Abel knew most of the Bible and all the Psalms by heart, while the minister, whom he disliked, prayed or tried to pray. Thereafter his house was run by an untidy old cousin who cooked his meals and kept things going after a fashion. In this unpromising environment, little Cecilia Gay had grown up. Valsey had known Sissy Gay, fairly well in the democracy of the public school, though Sissy had been three years younger than she. After they left school, their paths diverged, and she had seen nothing of her. Old Abel was a Presbyterian. That is, he got a Presbyterian preacher to marry him, baptize his child, and bury his wife. And he knew more about Presbyterian theology than most ministers, which made him a terror to them in arguments. But Roaring Abel never went to church. Every Presbyterian minister who had been in Darewood had tried his hand, once, at reforming Roaring Abel. But he had not been pestered of late. Reverend Mr. Bentley had been in Darewood for eight years, but he had not sought out Roaring Abel since the first three months of his pastorate. He had called on Roaring Abel then and found him in the theological stage of drunkenness, which always followed the sentimental maudlin one and preceded the roaring blasphemous one. The eloquently prayerful one, in which he realized himself temporarily and intensely as a sinner in the hands of an angry god, was the final one. Abel never went beyond it. He generally fell asleep on his knees and awakened sober. But he had never been dead drunk in his life. He told Mr. Bentley that he was a sound Presbyterian and sure of his election. He had no sins that he knew of to repent of. Have you never done anything in your life that you are sorry for? asked Mr. Bentley. Warren Abel scratched his bushy white head and pretended to reflect. Well, yes, he said finally. There are some women I might have kissed and didn't. I've always been sorry for that. Mr. Bentley went out and went home. Abel had seen that Sissy was properly baptized, jovially drunk at the same time himself. He made her go to church and Sunday school regularly. The church people took her up, and she was in turn a member of the mission band, the Girls' Guild, and the Young Women's Missionary Society. She was a faithful, unobtrusive, sincere little worker. Everybody liked Sissy Gay and was sorry for her. She was so modest and sensitive and pretty in that delicate, elusive fashion of beauty, 
which fades so quickly if life is not kept in it by love and tenderness. But then liking and pity did not prevent them from tearing her in pieces like hungry cats when the catastrophe came. Four years previously, Sissy Gay had gone up to a Muskoka hotel as a summer waitress, and when she had come back in the fall, she was a changed creature. She hid herself away and went nowhere. The reason soon leaked out, and scandal enraged. That winter, Sissy's baby was born. Nobody ever knew who the father was. Cicely kept her poor, pale lips tightly locked on her sorry secret. Nobody dared ask Roaring Abel any questions about it. Rumor and surmise laid the guilt at Barney Snaith's door because diligent inquiry among the other maids of the hotel revealed the fact that nobody there had seen Sissy Gay with a fellow. She had kept to herself, they said, rather resentfully. Too good for our dances, and now look. The baby had lived for a year. After its death, Sissy faded away. Two months ago, Dr. Marsh had given her only six months to live. Her lungs were hopelessly diseased. But she was still alive. Nobody went to see her. Women would not go to Roaring Abel's house. Mr. Bentley had gone once when he knew Abel was away, but the dreadful old creature who was scrubbing the kitchen floor told him Sissy wouldn't see anyone. The old cousin had died, and Roaring Abel had had two or three disreputable housekeepers, the only kind who could be prevailed upon to go to a house where a girl was dying of consumption. But the last one had left, and Roaring Abel had now no one to wait on Sissy and do for him. This was the burden of his plaint to Valancy, and he condemned the hypocrites of Darewood and its surrounding communities with some rich, meaty oaths that happened to reach Cousin Stickle's ears as she passed through the hall and nearly finished the poor lady. Was Valancy listening to that? Valancy hardly noticed the profanity. Her attention was focused on the horrible thought of poor, unhappy, disgraced little Sissy Gay, ill and helpless in that forlorn old house out on the Mistawas Road, without a soul to help or comfort her. And this in a nominally Christian society in the year of grace, nineteen and some odd. Do you mean to say that Sissy is all alone there now, with nobody to do anything for her? Nobody. Oh, she can move about a bit and get a bite and sup when she wants it, but she can't work. It's darned hard for a man to work hard all day and go home at night, tired and hungry, and cook his own meals. Sometimes I'm sorry I kicked old Rachel Edwards out. Abel described Rachel picturesquely. Her face looked as if it had wore out a hundred bodies, and she moped. Talk about a temper. Temper's nothing to mope in. She was too slow to catch worms and dirty. I ain't unreasonable. I know a man has to eat his peck before he dies, but she went over the limit. What do you suppose I saw that lady do? She'd made some pumpkin jam, had it on the table in glass jars with the tops off. The dog got up on the table and stuck his paw into one of them. What did she do? She just took hold of the dog and wrung the syrup off his paw back into the jar then screwed the top on and set it in the pantry. I sets open the door and says to her, Go. The dame went and I fired the jars of pumpkin after her, two at a time. Thought I'd die laughing to see old Rachel run with them pumpkin jars raining after her. She's told everywhere I'm crazy, so nobody'll come for love or money. 
But Sissy must have someone to look after her, insisted Valancy, whose mind was centered on this aspect of the case. She did not care whether Roaring Abel had anyone to cook for him or not. But her heart was wrung for Cecilia Gay. Oh, she gets on. Barney Snaith always drops in when he's passing and does anything she wants done. Brings her oranges and flowers and things. There's a Christian for you. Yet that sanctimonious, sniveling parcel of St. Andrew's people wouldn't be seen on the same side of the road with him. Their dogs will go to heaven before they do. And their minister, slick as if the cat had licked him. There are plenty of good people, both in St. Andrew's and St. George's, who would be kind to Sissy if you would behave yourself, said Valancy severely. They're afraid to go near your place. Because I'm such a sad old dog? But I don't bite. Never bit anyone in my life. A few loose words spilled around don't hurt anyone. And I'm not asking people to come. Don't want them poking and prying about. What I want is a housekeeper. If I shaved every Sunday and went to church, I'd get all the housekeepers I'd want. I'd be respectable then. What's the use of going to church when it's all settled by predestination? Tell me that, miss. Is it? said Valancy. Yes. Can't get it around nohow. Wish I could. I don't want either heaven or hell for steady. Wish a man could have them mixed in equal portions. Isn't that the way it is in this world? said Valancy thoughtfully, but rather as if her thought was concerned with something else than theology. No, no, boomed Abel, striking a tremendous blow on a stubborn nail. There's too much hell here, entirely too much hell. That's why I get drunk so often. It sets you free for a while, free from yourself. Yes, by God, free from predestination. Ever try it? No. Have another way of getting free, said Valancy absently. But what about Sissy now? She must have someone to look after her. What are you harping on Sis for? Seems to me you ain't bothered much about her up till now. You never even come to see her, and she used to like you so well. I should have, said Valancy, but never mind. You couldn't understand. The point is, you must have a housekeeper. Where am I to get one? I can pay decent wages if I can get a decent woman. Do you think I like old hags? Will I do? said Valancy. Good night. <laughs>